Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. On a bipartisan basis, House and Senate lawmakers passed a continuing resolution originally crafted by Speaker uh, Mike Johnson to keep the government open through January. Despite mounting international pressure, Israel is pressing ahead with its mission to eradicate Hamas in Gaza, occupying hospitals, including Gaza's largest, Al-Shifa, in their search for Hamas uh, command centers. This as tensions in the West Bank continue to rise, and even senior U.S. leaders worry that Israel doesn't have a plan for what's next uh, in this campaign, much less more broadly, aside from exacting vengeance, whether against Hamas or, unfortunately, innocent bystanders. President Biden and China's Xi Jinping concluded a successful summit meeting, resuming military-to-military links, uh, agreeing to rekindle some trade links, while at the same time agreeing to disagree, especially regarding Beijing's intimidation of nations across the region. For some, it was a successful summit. For others, little more than optic. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dove Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and Internet national studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, uh, welcome back. It wouldn't be Friday unless we were all uh, convening. A quick programming note, the show is taking a break next Friday, so do not tune in uh, for that. We will pick up uh, the week uh, after. With that out of the way, Michael, we have a bouncing baby continuing resolution. Uh, It's going to see us uh, through uh, January. Uh, This passed on a bipartisan uh, basis. Uh, The House passed it. The Senate passed it uh, on Wednesday. The president affixed his signature to the measure uh, on Thursday. some of the Republicans who voted uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy off the island are very upset with Mike Johnson now uh, for for having gotten Democratic support to get this passed. It didn't include any landmines in it. What does this entire episode tell us about what uh, how business is going to be transacted uh, by both sides going into the future, including for the National Defense Authorization Act, as well as something more stable on appropriations, because the concern that we're going to be on a full year CR is almost now universal. I've spoken to senior DOD officials, and they are very worried we're going to be stuck with a full year CR. Walk us through what's in this deal that's interesting and what it tells us about the future. Uh, I can walk through all three. uh, And I will say that uh, right now, as of today, I do not believe that we're going to be under a a full year CR. And I'll explain why in in a minute. So you're right. So the House passed uh, the laddered uh, CR that was crafted by Mike Johnson on Tuesday, Senate passed it Wednesday, and they were both uh, big votes. I mean, the, Senate, the House passed it 336 to 95, but as you mentioned, a lot of Republicans were unhappy with it. 93 of those 95 votes that were no's were Republicans. Uh, 209 Democrats uh, voted in favor of it, uh, but in the Senate enjoyed uh, dramatic uh, bipartisan support. The CR passed 87 uh, to 11. Now, this CR members laddered. So the first CR does expire uh, on January 19th. It has four appropriations bills, agriculture, energy and water, uh, Milcon VA, and the transportation bill. The second one is the remaining eight, and those expire on February 2nd. Now, these have no policy changes, no spending reductions, no aid to Israel, Ukraine, or Taiwan. Uh, these are essentially uh, clean uh, CRs. 
Uh, and Johnson has said that he is not passing another short-term uh, funding bill. This is this is the last one. And so the timeline is, is tricky because the House uh, went home on Wednesday, and they're not scheduled to come back until November 28th after Thanksgiving. And under the current calendar, there's really only three legislative weeks left uh, in this year. And when they get back next year, uh, they, not, they don't come back until the second week of January. So there's only 19 legislative days until the first CR expires and only 23 legislative days until the second one expires. So which really makes December critical. And the members I've talked to realize that they, when they get back from Thanksgiving, uh, they're going to need to agree with the Senate on a top line number and tell the Appropriations Committee staff to begin a conferencing the appropriations bills so that when they get back, uh, in January, they can start passing a series of minibuses to avoid uh, these deadlines and another threatening uh, threatening of a government shutdown or the threat of a long-term CR. Now, look, this is a victory for Mike Johnson. I mean, I never thought you know we'd keep saying that avoiding a government shutdown is a victory, but it was a victory for him. And he also prevented the Senate from jamming them uh, up against uh, the Christmas holidays. But, you know, as you mentioned, some folks on the right are very unhappy. I mean, uh, and, and remember, this latter CR was the Freedom Caucus's idea, but yet they all voted against it. And the chairman of the Freedom Caucus, Scott Perry, you know, came out saying that not only wouldn't he support it, he called it you know, fiscally irresponsible, it changes nothing, and emboldens a do-nothing Senate and a fiscally illiterate president. And this is really almost comical because it's really the Freedom Caucus here that's fiscally illiterate because they're, they're trimming around the edges here, making very, very painful cuts, which in the end will harm Americans, but will have really no impact on the deficit and the debt. I mean, if they get everything they want, uh, the deficit next year, instead of being $2 trillion, will be just north $1.8 trillion. And if we eliminate all discretionary spending, as you know, we still have an annual budget deficit of over $400 billion a year. And these are guys who rage against socialism, but yet are falling on their swords over Social Security and Medicare, which are the key drivers, in addition to our revenue problem, of, of, of the debt. So, or, or, then, or eliminating or eliminating a Lloyd Austin's salary, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right. et cetera. Exactly. Right? I mean, all of these they're, optical BS maneuvers. Exactly. They're just not, it's not a serious discussion, right? And, and Chip Roy made it worse. I mean, we've talked about him repeatedly on the show. I mean, he got, went to the floor on Wednesday raging, saying, I want, want, my, want my Republican colleagues to show one thing that I can go home and, and campaign on. And like he's the guy who's the chairman of the No Caucus. So, of course, there's nothing right. to campaign on because he puts a roadblock in front of everything. And one of Johnson's aides came out saying he's like an arsonist, you know, complaining about the smoke. Uh, so this is <laughs> that's you know, a good line. Really, that's a, good line? a really good line. <laughs> <laughs> so you, 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 you're so right. that This is looming in the background. But I still believe uh, that we're going to get there based on the conversations I've had with Democrats and Republicans, authorized and appropriators and leadership staff right. this week. Um, and, and, and I think now, obviously, you asked about NDAA and appropriations because they're all linked here. Um, right. You know, the NDAA conference has been quietly going on uh, very well behind the scenes. And uh, as of as of yesterday, the bill is done. And the plan was initially to file this bill uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving. Now, however, the Senate never formally went to conference, but that doesn't really matter. They, this, this is really done at the, at the staff level. But Senator Wicker, who's the senior Republican on the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, went to the floor Wednesday night and was trying to hold up the passage of the CR until the Senate formally agreed to go to conference. And about 10 o'clock that night, Sherwood came to the floor and named conferees and, and went uh, agreed to go to the conference and they agreed then to pass the King resolution. That actually might actually slow down the NDAA now because uh, now with the members getting involved and starting to debate some of the issues, right. 
uh, it's possible it slows it down. So we're, a lot remains to be seen. I still believe NDA will get done. Schumer has committed to getting on the floor in December. Uh, so is the House. Uh, but we'll see if the bill is actually filed uh, the Friday after uh, Thanksgiving. Now, appropriations continues to be a complete and total mess. Uh, in the House on Wednesday, the, the Republicans couldn't even pass the rule to even begin debate on the Commerce Justice Science Appropriations Bill. So that had to be pulled. And then on the Labor HHS Appropriations Bill, they saw they didn't have the votes to pass that. So they pulled that as well. So they had planned to vote into the e late evening on Wednesday and vote again on Thursday instead. Around lunchtime on Wednesday, they just sent everybody home and said, that's enough. Um, now, we've wasted a lot of time, as you know, you know, uh, without a speaker for three weeks. We've also wasted an enormous amount of time voting on hundreds of amendments to these bills that can't right. even uh, pass off the floor. Um, so, you know, we've got about five appropriations bills in the House that just cannot pass. Uh, I think that what leadership's going to do, based on my conversation with them, is they're going to break this pledge to pass 12 individual appropriations bills because they can't and go straight to conference on those bills, which they can. And they've done that in the past. Meanwhile, in the Senate, uh, Susan Collins is pressing to pass another minibus. They passed one, which was three bills. They want to pass another minibus with three or four defense, labor, age, uh, commerce, justice, science, energy, and water. That remains uh, to be seen. Um, but what I think the Senate will pass when it comes to appropriations is supplemental spending when it comes to uh, Ukraine, uh, Israel, uh, and, and Taiwan and the border, uh, Schumer. And, 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 and so, what what does the what do the contours of that uh, look like, right? Because there are a lot of folks who are very stressed out, not just about when it happens, but actually the delays. I mean, DoD is down to less than a billion dollars in authority. Anyway, you're right. All right, and and there are no clear answers on this right now. So I think what we do know in the short run is that. Schumer wants to advance this bill in the coming weeks. So this is something that's going to be done uh, in December before the Senate uh, adjourns and I think before the House adjourns. Uh, it's going to have Israel aid. It's going to have Ukraine aid. Uh, it'll probably have Taiwan, money for the border, humanitarian assistance to Gaza. But as you know, the biggest holdup, what we talked about is Republicans are assisting in exchange for approving Ukraine. They want a, a border policy right, as well as money. And now Schumer is finally saying he thinks that they can get to a reasonable, uh, realistic compromise on the border. So I think, you know, we, the House is so worried about getting jammed uh, by the Senate on a, with a CR. I think it's very possible to get jammed on the supplemental because I think when the supplemental does come over to the House, it'd be very far hard for Mike Johnson not to put this on the floor, especially if it has the border policy in there. Uh, and these are things that Republicans support. And I think uh, it would pass with more Democratic votes than Republican votes, but I think it would still pass uh, overwhelmingly. So I'm cautiously optimistic on this front. And you're right. I mean, it's not just Ukraine's running out of bullets, but uh, is Israel is saying, too, that they are very low on ammunition right. as well, including artillery. So time is of the essence here uh, to get these done. So I'm cautiously optimistic that it will happen. Um, uh, Jim, uh, let me quickly uh, bring you into this and interrupt regular order. Uh, but, hey, you know, people have already dynamited that. So but I'm bum. Uh, we're, we're here all week. Um, talk. Uh, tell us a little bit about how dire the situation now is, especially the message that this sends. You know, you have been growing increasingly pessimistic about where we are in the war and where we're going to uh, where we might be going. And, you know, the important role that the United States plays uh, in this. Give, give us your sense on what message that this sends at a time when the Russians really are restocking and, and the Ukrainians, you know, are, are looking at a very long uh, uh, winter that is going to be stalemated while also being on the receiving end of attacks? Well, I, I'm trying not to be um, 
pessimistic. I'm trying to be the Jim Towns and the optimist. Uh, and, and so I'm fighting pessimism. Uh, but I think uh, it's obvious that uh, one of the signals that this sends to both Ukraine as well as to the Russians is that the, you know, the, the days of having confidence that this assistance will flow at a regular rate for the long term that that confidence is no longer, uh, you know, warranted in a lot of ways. If we have to go through time and time again, what Michael has been describing here in terms of the fits and starts with the budget and with the politics behind the budget and the supplemental particularly, um, you know, they might get funding this time, but what about next time? Um, you know, there's a lot of talk in town about what will the NATO summit look like in July? Uh, if we were able to provide, uh, you know, supplemental funding, uh, but then it's running out and we're having a hard time doing it again. Uh, what does this mean for long-term support that Ukraine can count on? Uh, and is this a sign to Putin that his strategy was right, uh, that there will be fatigue in Washington particularly, and that Washington politics uh, will, um, will undercut what Ukraine is trying to do? So if I were Zelensky, um, as I'm, which I, I'm sure he's he is as nervous as, as anybody about this same thing, uh, and they're they're sending uh, they're sending their people to Washington to talk to legislators, to talk to people outside the government. Uh, what can we do to get back to where we were in terms of supplying assistance on a more predictable rate? Where are we on this? How can we bring this back? So I think that's what really where the, the concern about is that long-term uh, assistance that we can count on. Uh, there is still some money left. There's not much. We are entering into the winter period. W will things slow down? We don't know. Uh, we know we're there's a, the talk about the stalemate, et cetera. But it's really what happens next summer. Uh, what's going to be in the pipeline that can start now? That's the problem with these logistics is uh, if it can't be predictable and we can't have confidence in the flow of assistance that makes planning just impossible for Ukraine. And you have Putin sitting there and, and telling his advisors, I told you so. Thanks very much, Jim. And I, I'm going to uh, come back to you in just a minute, but I want to go back uh, to uh, Michael, um, you know, speaking about uh, patients uh, running out. Uh, there is mounting frustration with Alabama Republican Tommy Tuberville. He's got a hold now that extends to 450 senior leaders. Um, you know, the, the Senate took measures in order to be able to confirm the chairman, uh, General Brown, you know, get General Alvin, uh, you, you know, and I'm, uh, you know, coming to you from this program from the parking lot. Uh, at uh, uh, Andrews uh, Air Force Base, where uh, he just had his change of command uh, ceremony to become the 23rd Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force. Um, Mike Lee uh, of Utah came to Tommy Tuberville's rescue uh, on, on this, uh, on the Senate floor, where Joni Ernst, uh, Senator Sullivan, uh, Senator Graham, all were putting pressure, continuing to put pressure on him. Where does this stand now? So we are making uh, some progress. Uh, so you're right. Uh, you know, after they passed the CR on Wednesday night, going into the wee hours of Thursday morning, uh, Senator Sullivan, as you mentioned, Joni Ernst, Lindsey Graham, and also Todd Young uh, went to the floor to try again to break these holds and, uh, and, and, and talk about these nominations. And each time they were met by objections, yes, from Tupperville. And of course, you're right. Mike Lee uh, stood by his side saying that Senate Republicans should not allow these promotions to proceed until the Pentagon drops its policy of paying for the travel expenses of service members who obtain abortions. But prior to that, on Tuesday, 
uh, the Rules Committee met and did pass a re the resolution we've been talking about that would change uh, the rules of the Senate to allow uh, these promotions to be done uh, on block. Uh, now, it was a party line vote, uh, but uh, several Republican senators have indicated they would vote for this if, when it came to the floor. And Mitch McConnell himself has left the door open uh, to backing this in the future. So it's just a question of uh, when Schumer can bring this to the floor. I think I mentioned last week it would not be before Thanksgiving, which is not. Uh, I doubt it will be the week after Thanksgiving, but I do see this coming to uh, the floor sometime before the end of the year and uh, this logjam being broken before the end of the year. Uh, and uh, just uh, very, very uh, quickly, because, you know, if this was regular order, the congressional piece of it would be much shorter or <laughs> tends to be long because there is uh, mayhem. And let's talk about some more dysfunction and mayhem, uh, shall we? Uh, in finding dysfunction, uh, both in the House and in the Senate, right? We almost saw uh, a fist fight and it's epic to see Bernie Sanders reminding uh, a senator, you're a United States senator, sit down with his with the Bernie Sanders hand, uh, which was great. And now we have an ethics committee report on George Santos. We have a lot of people who are not going to run. I mean, you know, walk us through sort of the dysfunctional dynamics, the people who are not running and the meaningful impact that's actually going to have, you know, and and how like what it, what it does for the majority between now and the 24 election, you know, much less, uh, you know, what happens after 24. No, you're, you're right. And this dysfunction is leading to, I think, more uh, retirements than we would ordinarily see. Uh, it was a really crazy week, right? You have Congressman Tim Burchett from Tennessee who says that McCarthy elbowed him in the kidney as he walked past him in the car in the hallway. McCarthy, you know, denying this and then second time, him. second time he's accused of doing it. Right. Adam right. Kinzinger said that he got that treatment from uh, the former speaker. And then McCarthy then said, if I had punched him in the kidney, he'd be on the ground. Gates filed an ethics complaint against uh, McCarthy. Marjorie Taylor Greene came out attacking the members who voted to block her impeachment resolution of the Homeland Security Secretary. Uh, uh, Chairman Comer uh, in, uh, from, from Kentucky of the um, House Oversight Committee uh, attacked uh, Democrat Jared Moskowitz, calling him a smurf in the middle of the committee. And then, of course, as you mentioned, Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, who's a mixed martial artist, threatened to beat up a witness uh, during a hearing. Uh, so, um, oh, 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 you know, he accuses the witness uh, who is uh, a union leader uh, of uh, constantly goading him. Yes. But, you know, sticks and stones. Right. I mean, it's really it was really silly. Uh, so uh, and then, as you mentioned, too, um, you know, we have uh, George Santos. But, uh, we have the ethics report came out of this committee came out with a stunning you know, 56 page uh, report uh, showing all his misconduct. And uh, even the ethics committee itself said that he sought to fraudulently exploit every aspect of his house candidacy uh, for his own personal financial profit. Uh, and they list some of the things he spent money on uh, hotels, resorts and spas in La Atlantic City, Las Vegas, the Hamptons, his own personal rent, thousands of dollars spent at Hermes, Ferragamo, Sephora, uh, Botox, uh, setting up an OnlyFans uh, account. So the chairman of the House Ethics Committee, Michael Guest, is uh, expected today to file a privilege re resolution to expel him. Uh, so that would come up very quickly. He and then, uh, oh, he did file it. Okay. So, uh, and then uh, he will be, I, I believe Santos will be expelled. He'll be the sixth person uh, in U.S. history to be expelled uh, from the House. And, you know, and, and then one thing to quickly mention, too, in addition to the, the chaos in the House, there was also more chaos on the streets in front of the Democratic National Committee the other day after we had a very peaceful protests in support of Israel on Tuesday. It was a violent demonstration in front of the uh, pro-Palestinian demonstration in front of the Democratic National Committee, right. which forced a lockdown of the entire uh, Capitol complex. 
uh, Capitol Police came out saying that these protesters are protesting illegally and violently. Uh, they were uh, pepper spraying the police officers and attempting to break into the building. Uh, so, and there were many members of Congress in the building at the time. So, right. as you mentioned, you know, we've got now about 30 uh, members of Congress, uh, members of the House, that have announced their retirement and seven members of the Senate. And there is reason to be concerned, you know, because there are a lot of very middle of the road folks like, you know, like the Mitt Romney's of the world that have decided to call it quits. And, you know, the, with, with the divisions that we have in the politics of this country and the primaries really ruling all, there's a lot of concern that a lot of these House seats are going to be filled with much more extreme members from both sides, either from the right, right. or the left, which will make governing even harder uh, in 25 than it is right now. A quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Um, Patrick, uh, I'm going to uh, break uh, again, uh, regular order, and bring you in. Obviously, uh, the big event of the week was uh, the Biden she uh, meeting uh, on the sidelines of the uh, Asia Pacific uh, Economic. Uh, conference uh, in uh, San Francisco during which the president met with a vast array of Pacific powers. What do you make of this summit? Well, Vago, uh, this was a necessary meeting. It was arguably consequential, and yet it was not substantial because the durability of the uh, goodwill uh, is uh, going to be very limited. Uh, she will leave his heart in San Francisco and we'll be back to the same tensions we've had before. In other words, the behavior of, of is not changing of either party, um, at least not of the two governments. Now, she was partly pitching this uh, argument to CEOs, although he he failed to make uh, the argument that I thought he might make. Um, but he also uh, succeeded in doing the minimum necessary and still come away with what seems like a successful summit. And same thing with President Biden. How little can governments do and still seem successful well, we just did it. And that's why I think this was part stability operations and part uh, perception management. Um, both leaders are heavily constrained and uh, stuck in their positions. Um, and, uh, you know, neither was going to budge. And yet they had to come away with something. So it was scripted uh, exactly the way it went, um, almost exactly, because I was given a, a long reading beforehand and I was given a reading on the way out. And it was incredible how similar the two seemed and if you discount some of the spin that might be coming from officials, uh, even so, um, this was, uh, again, a necessary but not substantial meeting. And I can go into the most hardcore defense issues uh, very immediately and just talk about them because the put aside the fentanyl agreement, which, of course, was uh, something the American polity really wants and needs, given the opioid crisis. It, but China was, again, just promising essentially to do what they've promised to do before, although this time they'll have a working group in the administration has taken the Ministry of Public Security's forensic office or institute off the uh, entity list. But Biden said rightly that it's cross but verify. OK, that, that's good. They were going to do that. We could have done that without a summit. The military the military uh, resumption at all levels, uh, at uh, an operational level, theater level, a senior leader level, including the resumption of the meetings of the military maritime consultative agreement. This is sort of like the incidents at sea that was successful during the Cold War with the Soviet Union and um, constantly asked, 
uh, by people who know that well, you know, why don't we do more of this with China? Well, because China doesn't pick up the phone and they don't really want to have the meetings. And it was a problem that preceded the Speaker Pelosi visit to Taiwan in August of last year. It's been really the last three years that they've been dysfunctional. And so now at least China's saying, uh, and in fact, she's parting words to the president, uh, you know, I'll pick up the phone anytime. Um, so there's at least a willingness in Beijing at the moment politically to talk. I think the Defense Department sees that as uh, essential. Uh, the White House sees it as essential because a few weeks ago, uh, the, one of the last encounters in the night with jets 10 feet away from each other um, it was scary. Um, and right. so right. China spooked the U.S. and uh, the U.S. really wants some type of mechanism for channel communication on this. Um, and, and we do need it. They also we want it because uh, because we're not sure the political leadership totally understands what the PLA operators are doing. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Um, and uh, this is at least one way of ensuring that there's accountability at the political leadership level, not simply rogue PLA officers being, um, you know, very hot doggish and, and, and reckless uh, in trying to enforce what they think is the uh, edict from on high. So right. at least that's you know, that is beneficial. We do want that to happen. But she made it very clear that essentially the stability, uh, you know, here is uh, in the eyes of the beholder, because the, the, the peacetime confrontation operations, as the Chinese refer to their own operations, are not going to stop. Um, there is no change of position on Taiwan or the South China Sea in the same fear that the administration has right now on, on specifically on the Philippines. Second Thomas Shoal, where the Sierra Madre was grounded back in 1999 and is a rusting hull and is constantly trying to be resupplied and bucked up, the Chinese are hoping will rust into the sea um, and will not be resupplied. And the Americans and, and President Biden said, look, mutual defense treaty applies to every sailor, every Marine in the Philippines on Sierra Madre. And the Chinese are saying, hey, we want the status quo, but the status quo began before 1999, before the grounding of that. So we do not agree at all on this very, very specific flashpoint and it's just one of several. Scarborough Shoal is still there. Taiwan is a big one. And, the, and on Taiwan, the biggest concern there is that the Chinese repeated the same formula that she has repeated in past private meetings, which is that uh, this is not an open-ended uh, sort of problem. We have to have unification eventually. But, he said, importantly, there's no timeline. Um, so those things are in intention, obviously. And then he, he basically hinted at a red line, which is the DPP, the whole Democratic Progressive Party, uh, which right now is still in, in the sort of uh, the given the nod for the likely election, that's something of a red line for China. So we, we may be in a big altercation next year. I'm, and I'm uh, going to uh, come back to you in just a moment because I want to give uh, Dove uh, a bite at this apple as well because he's he's got uh, some foreign views because I want to get into a little bit of the Taiwan dynam uh, dynamic. And Jim, I'm going to come to you next uh, in terms of some of the broader messaging. I mean, what I think is kind of interesting when you talk to senior military leaders uh, about what happened over the past week, uh, they they you know reiterate right we're keeping our head down, we're looking at the intelligence and and not you know, sort of the happy messaging and that they've received no guidance except to continue doing what they're doing, which is to, you know, focus on their knitting and build up uh, cap uh, capabilities. Dove, uh, why don't you come in here uh, for a second, whether on the political uh, dimension of this, but certainly get your take because you're uh, of a mind, uh, you're you're a little bit less convinced that this was a, either successful uh, and, and worse, you're worried that 
that we're kind of regressing into bad habits, even if the administration publicly and privately makes clear that that's not the case. But that's certainly your concern. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll take what Patrick says and go even further. Um, first of all, I, if you think about the mill mill uh, discussions and the so-called agreement in August not 2017, Joe Dunford, who was then chairman and his counterpart, General Fang went Fang Wee reached an agreement to improve communications between the two militaries and, and I'm quoting here, and reduce chances of miscalculations. And 13 months later, uh, a Chinese destroyer practically crashed into an, the American destroyer Decatur, and our ship had to turn starboard to avoid the crash. So, you know, we've seen this movie before. Uh, and uh, as Patrick said, we've seen it before on fentanyl. I mean, now it's precursor chemicals. But the whole reason that there was an issue with precursor chemicals, because there was an already an agreement on the drug itself and the Chinese simply worked the workaround and it could happen again. And then you have to look at the areas where the dog didn't bark at all. Nothing on Taiwan, nothing on the South China Sea or East China Sea. And, and you know, I'll, I'll go beyond what Patrick said on the South China Sea, because as long as China has its nine dash line, it's going to say that the South China Sea is its own sovereign territory and it will confront anybody, i.e. us in particular, who conduct freedom of navigation operations. So you can expect more trouble there. One other point, um, because uh, Patrick rightly mentioned that uh, she had this charm offensive with CEOs. Well, if you actually look at what's going on on the ground in China there, uh, American plants are moving out. They're moving to Vietnam. They're moving to Malaysia. They're moving to Philippines and, and, and so on and Thailand. And not only that, they are worried that if Trump comes back, there's going to be a real break. And they would then be forced to sell their plants at bargain basement prices. And they don't really want to have a fire sale. So they're they're onshoring to the United States. They're onshoring to Mexico and to Southeast Asia. The other interesting thing is that Chinese firms are doing the same thing. They are moving to Southeast Asia because they too worry about a trade war. And they figure, well, if I'm operating out of Singapore or Vietnam or wherever down in that region, I might be able to get around the trade war, at, which I couldn't do if I was operating out of China. So I don't think she got anywhere with CEOs because the only ones who will invest in China right now are ones who have no idea what China's about. And in fact, somebody told me today that he was asked by uh, a CEO, well, you know, if I if I go to one city in Southeast China and not in another city, Shenzhen instead of Guangzhou, will it be safer for me there? That's a question based on ignorance. And so I don't think she got very far there. Uh, I think he's going to remain under pressure uh, economically. And we go back to the original question. What will he do if that pressure continues? Will he just sit there and, and take it? Or will he lash out at Taiwan or whoever? So as I say, it, it was a nice summit in the sense that everybody was polite to everybody else. Right. Um, President Biden said he made real progress. But I don't see any progress. Um, and, look, and Jack, I, can uh, I just 
Could yeah, I just you, come you, in there? You may, I, the, only, the only thing I wanted to say uh, 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 quickly, uh, Dove, was my good friend Will Goodman, who was a Senate appropriator, uh, makes a great line. You know, it doesn't cost you anything to give people the sleeves off your vest, right? So if you can give the sleeves off your vest, it looks like you're, uh, you know, changing the vector of the conversation. You're making at least communication, right? I mean, we heard, uh, have heard uh, Chairman Brown said uh, yesterday at a Palace Foundation event, uh, technology event uh, that was uh, sponsored by uh, Mike Bloomberg, uh, uh, the new Defense Innovation Board chair. Um, you know, he said, look, communications is always a good thing, especially when tensions are running high because people weren't answering uh, the phone. Go, go ahead, uh, Patrick. And Jim, I want to come to you uh, in just a moment. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are obviously so many layers to China relations. Um, I agree with everything uh, Dove said. And yet at the same time, couple of points I'd want to make. One of them is that um, Xi Jinping made very clear in his remarks to the president um, that indigenization and self-reliance is the driving part of rejuvenation. So he was not even hinting at uh, buying into this peak China argument that some Americans like Michael you know, uh, Beckley writes. Um, he's, it was very much exuding confidence. And even when he appealed to the CEOs at the dinner, um, on Wednesday night, he 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 didn't say, uh, please come and invest. He just said, we're a super large market. You can't ignore us. Um, and I think in, in my point there would be, and I'm hanging around here in Ditchley in, in Oxfordshire this weekend with a lot of uh, people from the Indo-Pacific. And I can tell you, they do buy into that argument that um, many of them do buy in that China is inevitably the largest economy and the, and, and the largest player with footprint in the Indo-Pacific. So um, Xi Jinping really does have a lot of confidence and a lot of um, buyers and backers. And yet um, the offshoring, uh, the fringe shoring, uh, you know, it's all happening. So it's both things are true. It's, it's complicated. Um, but um, it is interesting to see that China is not going to concede one whit that it's declining, um, right. even though there clearly are concerns and they do need things from the Americans and American businesses are running away. And yet, and one caveat here, all top 20 U.S. businesses are in China. So they, right. they, they're not investing further because they're worried about the uncertainty, but their money is still there because they still think it could be a market opportunity. Um, I think um, I wanted to just uh, talk about the global issues uh, working lunch that um, she and Biden had, which was only three on three, not the 10 on 10 kind of extended format. Um, and the administration started off by talking about uh, the Russia-Ukraine war and the need to rein in Russia. And they're very concerned about China's support for the Russian military support that uh, they're getting from China. Um, they're also worried about Russia's uh, ties to North Korea. And they're worried about um, Iran. And they want Iran to uh, they want China to press their friend in Iran to not uh, in, in excite their proxies, not to uh, unleash them, but rather to rein them in. Um, China claimed that they were asking Iran to rein them in for what it's worth. Uh, that's why I want Dove's you know, comment on the reality. Um, they also um, showed some distance from in concern about Russian support for North Korea. But when pressed on the Russia-China relationship, Xi Jinping was adamant that he was in solidarity with Putin. So he was not going to budge one inch. And, and the only uh, room there is sort of with Wang Yi privately, separately, to try to say, look, but it's in your interest to have stability. And they, he'll say yes, but Xi Jinping will not concede on that. So it's interesting on the global politics issues that Russia, uh, that China wants to play it both ways. That's not a big surprise. But it is interesting about if they are reigning in Iran, even one whit, um, that's a benefit, even while they're using 
um, the uh, the conflict in the Middle East to appeal to the global south. Uh, Dove, you've got your finger up two two uh, finger interjection. And I want to uh, bring Jim into this because I do want to quickly talk about Ukraine and we have to talk about uh, what's going on with uh, Israel uh, in Gaza against uh, Hamas. So go ahead, Dove. Yeah, I, I want to be clear. It's not that uh, companies are just fleeing China, but even the big guys, Amazon, Google, as I understand it, uh, what they're doing, uh, as Patrick said, is they're not building new plants, number one. Number two is that all these companies are slowly divesting. They don't want to rattle China because that'll just make life worse for them. But there's, in addition to simply building new plants outside China, they are looking to sell at least some of their facilities, and they call it consolidation, uh, inside China itself. But it's a gradual project. The only time there's going to be, you know, everybody's going to try to leave the sinking ship is if Trump is back and people fear a trade war. Uh, just a quick reminder to our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, uh, that I, uh, I that I co-host with my good friend, uh, JJ uh, Gertler. Um, Jim, I'm, I want to uh, bring you uh, into this, uh, and it's uh, sort of a messaging nuance, right? I mean, the United States either has trouble with nuance, either we think it's a problem or we don't think it's a problem. There's no middle setting. It, it's it's like it gets our full attention or it sort of doesn't get our attention. Um, talk to us about how Europeans are viewing the messaging of this. China, 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 you have to divest from China. You know, it's about China. We have to focus on China. And And now all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute. But we we told you it's all about China, but now we're being nicer on China. Am I overdoing this in how I'm seeing this? Or is it, you know, it is the administration conveying that nuance to our allies and partners? Right. I mean, you're you're even surfacing seeing, you know, Lord Cameron coming back as the foreign minister of the United Kingdom and folks going, oh, my God, he was a China appeaser. What's going to happen there? Give us your sense on the messaging here and whether the administration is getting right and the rest of the world. Patrick, maybe get your take on this, you know, and certainly our European allies. How are they viewing this or are they viewing this for what it is, which is look optically nice, but materially not that big a change? Well, I think I think in most European capitals, they're just glad that we're talking. I mean, in a sense, Europe has been watching the U.S. and China run at each other uh, the way uh you are as a bystander and you're seeing uh, in front of you a big car crash and you see the cars heading at each other and you're just closing your eyes and holding your breath. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of how uh, a, a lot of the nations in Europe are. They're watching, they're sitting there watching this happen. And so uh, the fact that those two uh, leaders got together, it was a was a relief uh, that, that there's at least there's talk going on. Because as, uh, you know, their economies are wrapped up in this as well. And as the U.S.-Chinese relations go, so go their economic uh, ties there with, with China. And uh, as you know, with Germany and some of the other uh, European countries, those ties can be pretty deep. So I think at a minimum, they were glad that there was talk going on in terms of how substantive was it, et cetera. I think the, the experts and some of the foreign ministries there in European capitals, they might be saying some things that you would have heard Dove or uh, Patrick saying, you know, what kind of substance was there, et cetera, et cetera. But I think generally, 
in, in terms of Europeans. I think they're glad that at least if there's talk going on uh, and maybe that'll lessen the pressure on them from the United States uh, and the alarm ringing by the United States, it, that might cool down a little bit for them as well. So, so I think, I think generally they're, they're glad we're talking. I think generally they're hoping the results are going to be less pressure on them to, to do something about China. But at the end of the day, the experts in Europe are not being fooled either. Uh, but, uh, but right now they're, they're continuing to let the U.S. You know, take the lead. Patrick, I, I want to get your sense, right? How is this being received by Asia-Pacific uh, leaders? Asia-Pacific leaders right now um, are playing a balance of power game like everybody else. They mostly have economically driven strategies that are at risk if there's major conflict with China. And yet they desperately want to keep and lock in the United States as their security partner or guarantor and um, make sure that uh, the United States is strong and doesn't make major concessions at a summit, say, with China's leader. <laughs> um, so th they're wary of what happened, but they're also, um, I think, supportive. Uh, and it was preceded, of course, by Prime Minister Albanese's uh, trip to China. Um, and um, Prime Minister Kishida had 45 minutes with, uh, with Xi Jinping in San Francisco as well. And there are concerns that um, China is succeeding in, in driving wedges, if you will, inside the alliance. Um, but uh, it was necessary. I mean, the, you know, this is the first summit face-to-face -face since Bali. Bali had a very short-lived uh, shelf life in terms of its spirit that fell apart by February with the balloon incident. Um, and now we have uh, another short burst of uh, sort of uh, reassurance that China and the United States are not interested in driving toward war, but without any behavior change, without any structural change, without any real substantive change, um, there's no guarantee that this doesn't fly off the rails next year or the year after. And meanwhile, right. the competition uh, continues. China did not want to portray the relationship as one of competition. And so it was only the administration working hard behind the scenes to get them to negotiate on, on a, the wording about um, managing competition responsibly. Um, it's a pretty small concession uh, to make, but even that they didn't want to make because China wants to be seen as only a partner, as an economic partner, and, and please invest in China, and they don't want to make any concessions. But the reality is they re they realize it's it's a very fierce competition. Um, and you hope Americans understand that despite talking to China, the competition continues. Uh, well, I can I can tell you that in the conversations I've had over the course of the last week with senior officials, uh, certainly on the defense side of the universe, there's there, there appears to be no guidance to let up and that their focus is based on the intelligence and what it is the Chinese are doing and building up those capabilities. And we heard that from statements across uh, the, um, the uh, spectrum. Um, let me. Uh, we're running a short on time. Dove, I'm going to come to you because it's important for us to have a couple of minutes to talk about Israel's war uh, on Hamas, given uh, all the other headlines uh, that we're seeing. Um, the U.S. officials you know, have put pressure on Israel to move cautiously, and it's been uh, a cautious uh, campaign against uh, or operation against uh, Al-Shifa uh, Hospital. Um, in the wake of this uh, occupation of the hospital, the second hospital that Israel has since occupied, there, there doesn't appear to be uh, as much evidence, uh, ultimately, of Hamas command centers. The president of the United States this week came through, uh, came out and uh, reiterated that through our own intelligence sources, we can confirm that we believe 
that there are hostages that are being held and that there are command centers or at least a Hamas presence under these hospitals is very much in keeping with the Hamas ideology, right? I mean, if you get martyred in the crossfire, you're lucky to have died, you know, in the struggle is is the way they, they look at it. And if you've actively killed Israelis, we really want you back and we want you alive to conduct the, the next series of operations, as twisted as that is. How much longer does Israel have to be able to achieve, you know, because there are a lot of people who are looking at this who are even supportive of Israel and looking at this and saying, guys, I mean, one room with a couple of AK-47s in it does not, you know, we're looking for something maybe a little bit more elaborate, a little more extensive, a little bit more definitive, uh, as opposed to what we saw under the al Rantizi hospital, which we were shown a room. And in this case, we have a shaft. I mean, obviously, it's still early days. How is this unfolding? What's the strategy? Bibi's already said it's not going to be kind of a two-state solution. There'll be occupation of Gaza. There's no room in the Palestinian Authority. I mean, a lot of this is keeping him in power. But but ultimately, where, where are we and where is this going? And what's the next phase of this operation? Because international pressure at some point is going to have a meaningful impact on how this turns out, isn't it? Well, it might, but it might not. And the reason I say that is, although... The, the Israeli population clearly can't stand Netanyahu anymore. Uh, and as you said, uh, so much of this, if there's a plan for the day after, it's Bibi's plan to stay in power for the day after and after that as well. But nevertheless, I think the uh, majority of the country uh, really feels that this is an existential threat. Um, the unity in the country is remarkable. There are uh, signs all over Israel in Hebrew, basically saying we stand together. Uh, no sign, very few signs about revenge, by the way. Um, but the the feeling among Israelis is, look, uh, we're just not going to allow the Holocaust to happen again. We're, we know we're alone. If anybody wants to help us, the United States, fantastic. But we're going to keep on going. The problem is, it's all very nice to say you're going to keep on going, but what are you going for? And uh, some people are already saying they've dropped more uh, more bombs than uh, the equivalent of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, and uh, whether that's true or not, they've clearly been bombing endlessly. Uh, places like Al Jazeera, not just Al Jazeera, saying, look, this, the uh, show of guns in hospitals is simply something, uh, it's a setup. Uh, the Israelis dropped the guns themselves, and the Israelis haven't done very much to refute that. So you've got a situation here where uh, the world's uh, moving slowly away from the Israeli position. There's talk now about some kind of international force taking over Gaza, which Bibi totally opposes. It would never be the UN. The U Israel would block that. Um, but, it, it, you know, uh, Israel might vet a number of countries and say, OK, but Bibi doesn't really want to do that either. Uh, and finally, the Israelis right. uh, have to remember and make it number one on their list of uh, things that they tell the world that the hostages are still there. Uh, one was just found dead, uh, a lady right. in her 60s. Um, but, you know, that has to be their top priority. And with all this bombing and all this talk about uh, remaining in Gaza and all that, they are obscuring the number one concern of the average Israeli, which is bring the hostages home.
I, and and uh, there is uh, a little bit, right? I mean, mutual Israeli friends uh, that we have uh, have expressed skepticism that once the operation started, getting the hostages out was was going to be very difficult, even if one hostage uh, was uh, released. And there is talk that, you know, uh, United States, Qatar and other nations have brokered something, but we're waiting on Israel to see whether or not they will approach uh, approve a deal that would release about 50 uh, or so hostages. Let me just in 30 seconds, U.S. is striking increasingly uh, at uh uh, uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps positions, this time taking out some leadership uh, in Syria. From your standpoint, what's the escalatory ladder there? And what's the West Bank situation, right? Because these are integrally uh, tied to one another. And then we have to unfortunately wrap. Go ahead. Well, uh, on the attacks on Syria and, and uh, it, frankly, the attacks uh, by uh, Hezbollah, not Hezbollah, excuse me, by uh, uh, Iranian mili- backed militias in Iraq and Syria, uh, there's clearly been a stepping up on the part of the United States, rightly so, uh, to basically hit back every time they're hit. And that has to continue. The Iranians are not going to attack the United States directly. I don't even think they'll attack Israel directly. They like working through proxies. So one big question is, what will Hezbollah do? Right now, they seem to be deterred. Hopefully it stays that way. Uh, and secondly, will the militias continue to try to attack American troops if we respond the way we've been responding in the last 10 days. If, and on the other hand, we respond the way we responded prior to those 10 or so days, which was minimal responses for three years, that's gonna encourage both the Iranians and the proxies. So it's very, very important that we continue where we are right now, uh, hitting back every time we're hit. On the West Bank, there's a real problem there. The, The settlers, the extremists among the settlers are uh, exploiting what's going on in Gaza to to go after Palestinians, to go after Palestinian lands. And Bibi, as usual, is sitting on his hands when it comes to the West Bank. Everybody, thanks very much. Michael, we've only got 30 seconds. Is Joe Manchin running as a third-party candidate uh, as a spoiler with Mitt Romney as his running mate, as you suspect or have suspected might be the case in the past? Well, I, I don't, I'm not so sure Mitt Romney will be his running mate, but I do suspect that Joe Manchin is going to run for president on a third-party ticket. Uh, but he does not believe he's going to be a spoiler. He's saying that I'm not going to be a spoiler, and the media is reporting saying that Joe Manchin is saying he doesn't want to be a spoiler. There's a difference, because when you run, you think you're going to win. And I firmly believe that Joe Manchin is going to jump in this race, and that's a terrible thing for Joe Biden. Uh, it is a terrible thing for Joe Biden. And so are we going to see a confluence of factors Right. Uh, uh, Arabs in Michigan not voting. Young people turned off uh, by the war, even if they're young Jewish Americans. Right. It, it isn't this pretty much playing, you know, if 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 you wanted to be somebody scripting this for Donald Trump to be the next president in 24, wouldn't you kind of script it this way? Yes, I would. But again, I caution that we're a year out. A lot could happen between now and then. But right now there are dark clouds out there, but we have a way to go. Guys, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. It's always an honor and pleasure having you guys on the program. Hope everybody has a terrific Thanksgiving and a nice little break. Uh, And we will rejoin everybody uh, the week after uh, next. Thanks very much. Thank you to for joining us and making time for us. And a very special thanks to Bell and all of our sponsors for their generous support that makes this program possible every day. We'll see you again uh, on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. Until then, hope everybody has uh, a great day, a great weekend, and we'll see you then.